All right, so tonight, here's the big idea. Consider what makes counseling biblical. So I want to start a series on biblical counseling. Now, um, many years ago, as a young pastor, uh, one of the areas that I felt the most deficient uh, coming out of my college training and even doing a master's program uh, in Arizona at International Baptist College was the area of biblical counseling. Now, I uh, grew up in a church with a pastor, and I'm not putting him down. It's just a different generation. But um, he's just basically, I remember one time uh, to me, he said, never do counseling. And um, so I thought, well, that's, from now, from, from my perspective, that's a little unusual. And I think it was just that, that generation of pastoring. Um, and so the Bible tells us uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, ye that are spiritual, uh, to restore such a one, but bear one another's burdens. And so we need to bear one another's burdens. And when people come to you and they are sharing their burdens, sometimes all you need to do is really listen. And that's the best thing that you can really do is to listen with an empathetic heart and an ear. But sometimes they're asking for counsel and advice. What do you do? All right. Um, I can remember being a teenage boy and not exactly understanding certain things, but um, a lady came over to the house one day and she began talking to my mom about what happens in a woman's body uh, when you turn late midlife. And uh, it's like, why do I need to leave the room? Yeah, <laughs> it's like I was sent out, all right? Well, that was a, a very personal uh, situation where a sister in the Lord was asking uh, another sister in the Lord, uh, how do you handle this not only just physically, but biblically, how do you deal with your emotions when you're, you're going through that process? Um, I can remember uh, people coming to me saying, Pastor, help. Our child has uh, been kicked out of preschool for biting what do we do? And um, so what I heard was that there wasn't much discipline because they didn't want to destroy his leadership ability and uh, thought that that was taking leadership by biting people, um, quite the contrary. Um, but nonetheless, we didn't say that to them right there at the table as we were sitting around the house. We tried to provide biblical counseling, um, marriage counseling, um, other issues that both men and women face in their lives. Many times counseling is not the formal process where you're sitting down uh, with the clinical white jacket on and having pen and paper in your hand and you're taking notes and you know, you're, mm-hmm, yes, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. How, how does that make you feel? Mm-hmm, right. Uh, no, biblical counseling is parenting. What do you do when your junior high kids come home and they're having a hard time at school? How do they deal with those relationships? Um, what do you do when your young adult is looking in life for a mate? Uh, what biblical counsel do you give? So this is what I'm talking about. Now tonight, um, let's start with this as we consider this. Why is biblical counseling um, necessary, okay? Um, how many of you are familiar 
with a Christian man uh, in his ministry, uh, James Dobson. Are you familiar with him? All right. So just a little bit, so I'm going to talk to you for just a minute. Um, how many of you have ever heard of Jay Adams, a Presbyterian pastor from years ago? All right. So Jay Adams has written a book called Competent to Counsel, and uh, he is basically recognized as the father of the modern-day biblical counseling movement. And of course now uh, other men and other organizations have joined and, and sharpened and articulated that uh, very sharp. Uh, these little mini-counseling booklets out here. Um, Steve Viers from uh, Lafayette, Indiana. Of course, the, uh, the Tripp brothers, the Welches, um, some others out of the Christian Counseling Education Foundation out of Pennsylvania. But they would consider themselves to be biblical counselors because they rely upon the sufficiency of Scripture and that alone. Whereas other men who are doing a good work uh, would take an integrational approach, such as Dr. Dobson, where you take the psychology of the world and you try to find a happy medium with the scripture and uh, make that work. And so what makes biblical counseling biblical, all right? And why is there a need for that? And so as we think about what some of the needs are in our life today, um, how many of you have noticed the increase of people talking about seeing a psychiatrist, a, a psychologist, or even a counselor? Anybody? You've, you've heard of that increase and that uptick? Okay. Well, there, there's just a general need in society as a whole, all right? Um, but then when you consider that there are over 200 different schools of psychology and they all don't agree, and so you get competing uh, philosophies of, of psychology, and uh, that causes confusion. And uh, then you've got people who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they'll go to an unbeliever for advice and counsel on how to make something work. And um, so that doesn't always work, um, because we're not supposed to lean upon uh, the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way with sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, not all of them are out to scorn us or to uh, belittle us for our, uh, our, our faith, so forth. But all that proposes to be biblical counseling actually isn't. Okay? Um, do you mean that you're a Christian who counsels, but you're actually not giving Christian counsel? Um, are you providing a thoroughly biblical worldview? So these are some of the reasons for that. Um, because there's a growing need for the local church to understand that each one of us are biblical counselors. And the multitude of counselors, what? There is safety. And so we need to learn as a local church how to give biblical counsel. Um, there are a lot of things that I've seen through the years uh, as a pastor on people coming to me with uh, certain things like cutting 
uh, articles out of Bay Area parenting magazines and uh, redirecting your uh, child's anger instead of letting them hit another person, you give them some kind of object to hit. All right? So don't hit another person, just hit the wall or hit, you know, a punching bag and just visualize it as that person. Well, these things are, are not biblical in how we should deal with those. And so because our need uh, in caution here is the way that sometimes as Christians that we function um, will take a cut and paste approach. All right, I'll appropriate that and I'll put it into my life. I'll cut that out of that, that that's good, and then I'll paste it into my life and I'll try to make it work. Well, that's uh, one way that we can go about that. So there, there's a great need uh, in the body of Christ for biblical counseling. Um, so I think we can see that today. All right. So biblical counseling, first of all, recognizes the Bible as foundational. All right. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 4 when he was being tempted? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And how did he resist the devil on the three temptations that he faced? It is written. All right. Um, Lean not in thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him, God, and he shall direct thy paths. Um, thy word is more than necessary food. So we could talk about recognizing the Bible as foundational in giving counsel. Where is this counsel coming from? And why do we trust the Bible? And so let's just talk about some things. I've got a picture up here. Um, you could take what I'm going to present to you as a funnel, and you can pour the counseling need in from the top, or you could pour in the counseling philosophy from the top and see if it makes it through the filter, or you could invert the funnel and you make it into a pyramid, and you would put what's on the top then on the bottom, and so that would be foundational. But let's talk about some of this here for just a minute. Uh, can you see what number one says? That's pretty small print. The canon of Scripture. All right, so the word canon means measure or rule. What do we believe about the Bible? What is the Bible? Okay. Um, is the Bible Genesis through Malachi plus the Apocrypha and then the New Testament? Okay. Is the Word of God the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price? Is it the New World Translation? All right. um, is it the American Medical Association or Psychiatric Association? It, it, so what are we trying to use as the measure, the, the ruler for life? What is going to be that source? And so we would consider the Word of God the final authority for our living. Now, as Bible-believing Christians here in a Baptist church, uh, we like to say that the, in the acrostic Baptist, 
that be a Baptist would stand for Bible authority, that we hold to the Bible as our final authority. Now, there are other many, uh, many other Bible-believing groups that hold to the Bible as their final authority, um, so I'm not saying that Baptists are the only one who hold to that distinctive, but that is what makes us distinct, is that we're going to rely upon the, the Scriptures alone. So, God inspired the Bible. All Scripture is inspired. That means God breathed it out. So the Bible just doesn't contain some of God's words. The Bible is God's word. All right? Then the next thing that we believe about the word of God is that it is without error. Okay, So we, we call that inerrancy. The Bible is not going to give us false guidance in life. And so there are no mistakes in the scripture. So we believe in inspiration we believe in inerrancy. We believe in the authority of the Word of God. Jesus certainly did. All right. Um, in John chapter 5, uh, verse 39, he challenged the religious leaders of his day to search the Scriptures. Uh, for in them they think they had eternal life, but really Jesus said, the Scriptures only testify of me. And so Christ is the living word who has given us his written word, and it becomes the authority for our life. And so our opinions, we set those aside, and we hang on to the authority of Scripture. But now, here's the other thing. In evangelical Christianity, as a broad paint stroke here, we have to move beyond inspiration and inerrancy to sufficiency of Scripture. So tonight I invite you to take your Bibles and open up to uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. All right, look at verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, by which are given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. So have we been given all that we need to live life? What does verse 3 say? Yeah, all right, we, we have. Um, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. We have exceedingly great and precious promises. And so by these, then, we can become partakers. So the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, what you hold in your hands is sufficient. Now, by sufficiency, it's not like just having just enough. Right? It's not what the word sufficiency is supposed to mean here. Sufficiency is just enough and more than enough, all right, going beyond. And so that's why we have all things that have been given to us, not just certain things or not just enough things, but everything that we need 
has been given to us. So the, the sufficiency of Scripture. And so we, we look at the canon of Scripture and we say, okay, it's inspired by God. We recognize God's authority in our life. It's without error. So I can trust the Word of God to give me guidance and counsel in life. Uh, then we look at the Word of God and uh, we say that it, it has the authority over our lives. I will submit to what God says in His Word. And then the sufficiency, everything that I need to live life in a way that will please God and that will help me succeed in this life is contained in the Scriptures. And so that's the first filter that we run through. Now the next one there um, is the word hermeneutics. And we mentioned that word this morning, but that is the study of Scripture. All right, learning how to rightly divide the Word of God. So, do I want to preach law to somebody who is struggling under the weight of sin? Or do I want to share grace and faith and, and help them grow? And so, learning how to study the Word of God correctly, learning how to use it correctly, all right? Um, let me uh, just, this might come into number six, which is the bottom one, practical theology, um, or maybe even number five, systematic theology. So I'll hold off on that, but um, hermeneutics ha has a lot to do with the way that you uh, study Scripture, all right? And, and you know how to study Scripture. So if you're going to be a biblical counselor, guess what? You have to know how Scripture interacts with itself. What's the purpose of a law? Paul said in Galatians, it's a schoolmaster. It shows us our need of Christ. But the law can't justify us, Galatians chapter 2. There's no way. But we use the law to slay, not bring life. All right, But then we use grace and truth to bring people to life. John chapter 1, verse 17. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Um, would you necessarily want to take somebody to an obscure passage of Scripture that's maybe very um, prophetic and symbolic and then try to, in some convoluted way, explain that and make that apply to their life when they just need simple guidance. So we have to, to figure this out. So that, that's hermeneutics. Feed that through, all right? Um, so here's an example, all right? Um, many years ago, uh, how many of you remember um, the family radio hour, Harold Camping, uh, family radio? Uh, I, we used to listen to that for a while. All right, when we first moved to, to Bay Area, and then we kind of realized what was going on there. Uh, one night, um, a caller asked Mr. Camping this question. How do I get saved? And he said, well, I don't know if you can be saved. I, I don't know if you're one of the elect or not. See, now a lot of that has to deal with his systematic theology, but also his hermeneutic. And uh, by the way, he, he went off later in life. He, he denied a literal hell. Um, 
he prophesied four times the return of Christ by setting dates. And uh, he was like the Buffalo Bills, 044, all right? Uh, they, they went to the four Super Bowls and never won, all right? Um, and, and so his hermeneutic was completely off, and I was listening to him teach one night, and um, he was preaching on the burning bush. And he got the cross and the burning bush to be the same thing. I thought, wow, this guy is a skillful Bible teacher. How can you do that? All right. And um, so, you know, and he's not the only one who does that. All right. Sometimes we can preach messages and we can get the, the scepter in King Artaxerxes' hand uh, being prayer, you know, and, and points it at us in its favor. And um, one, one pastor uh, preached, and this was up in San Jose, uh, he preached that uh, the triumphal entry when Jesus was riding into Jerusalem upon the donkey uh, that had never been broken, that we as pastors are that donkey and we need to let Jesus sit on us. Okay? That's poor hermeneutics. It's poor exegesis too, all right? But it, it's taking things allegorically that are meant to be literal in a different way, all right? And so putting symbols and, and everything to, to all kinds of things. So that, that's what I'm talking about uh, with your biblical hermeneutics. You won't be a good Bible counselor if you are creating confusion with the Bible and you're trying to now turn here to this passage and, and um, you know, Adam and Eve hiding behind the fig leaf and, and you make up some imaginary connection, you know, to that was grace or something like that, you know. It just gets really bizarre and really wild. Well, people are going to be sitting there going, hmm, I don't see that, right? It's not going to help them. It's not going to give them the scriptures to equip them. So that's hermeneutics. All right, and then the next one is exegesis. And so let's just do it this way. If you could, grab your Bibles and grab it and pull something out of it. All right, everybody do that. Exegesis, all right? Pull what's in the Scripture out of the Scripture and then apply it to your life. Don't try to put your thoughts into the Scripture and make it say what you want it to say. Now, this can be very difficult sometimes. Uh, how many of you have ever heard the passage in Revelation 3 preached about the Laodicean church being the lukewarm church and that God would have you either be on fire for Christ or not love him at all, not go to church at all, just be cold? How many of you ever heard those that preach that way, that extreme? All right. Oh, that's a bad exegesis. All right. Horrible exegesis. Because the Laodicean believers had to take the water when it came into the city and do one of two things with it. They either had to heat it back up or they had to let it sit longer to get cold. Because hot water and cold water are useful water. But lukewarm water wasn't any good. So it wasn't good for drinking and it wasn't good for cooking. So you just didn't use that. And so the Lord is saying, look, uh, I want you to be useful. All right? That's what he's saying. I don't want you to be apathetic. And so that's where you get your exegesis. So you have to be careful when you come to a text that you're 
not putting your thoughts into the text, but you're rather pulling them out. And that will help people because they need to go and find the verse and pull it right out of there themselves. All right, so um, there's actually a little bit of this that, that's coming back into, um, into play within larger evangelical Christendom. How many of you are familiar with the term Gnostic? All right. So the ancient Gnostics were a uh, heretical sect of Christianity, and they had their own writings, by the way. Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, and in other writings. And they claimed to have special secret inside knowledge. And that if you follow their teaching, then you would be okay. Whereas Peter addresses that as men who deceive by making words plastic, all right, making them say what they want them to say. And so we can't, and, and this is why I was preaching what I was preaching this morning a little bit about how you need to know how to study the Bible for yourself. So um, I would get uh, Roy Zuck's book, Basic Bible Interpretation, find that, Google that. That's the one I would recommend. And, and just start going through that if you don't know how to study the scripture for yourself, all right? Otherwise, you are just kind of following your religious teacher instead of the authority of the Lord in the scripture. But a counselee needs to see the advice that you're giving coming clearly out of scripture so that they can go to that reference and use that as their tool to help them in life. And so exegesis. All right, then biblical theology. All right, now you've got systematic and, and practical theology. Let me explain these things, all right? Systematic theology, number five, uh, there's 10 classic areas, all right? Theology proper, about God the Father, Christology, about Christ, pneumatology, about the Holy Spirit, soteriology, about the doctrine of salvation, anthropology, about the, the doctrine of man, all right? So I just gave you about five. Uh, you've got the church, you've got end times, uh, you've got the doctrine of, of sin, harmatology, and so forth, which is a subset of man. And um, you try to put it together in systematic theology. And then practical theology, you might also call that pastoral theology. Now, not in the sense of the office, but in the sense of shepherding somebody. Now, the Trips years ago wrote a book called Shepherding the Child's Heart. And so as parents, we're shepherds, and we're shepherding the heart of our children. And um, so that's what we're talking about there. How do you actually give uh, practical theology? How do you make what's in the scripture uh, fit to your life? But biblical theology is different than that, because biblical theology is is more important in the order of emphasis here in the fact that you have to filter it through the Bible first, all right? Certainly things that are systematic theology or practical theology, you're going to find them in the Bible, all right? But you might get surprised. The Bible might actually change your systematic theology. Oh, I didn't realize that, all right? So, Let's be honest, and I'll, I'll make a, a great admission here tonight. My systematic theology that I hold to doesn't always work. And 
you have to acknowledge the authority of Scripture and say sometimes, I don't know. I can't make that sit in. But biblical theology, all right? Finding the, the themes that are in the Bible and then applying them to your life, all right? So Jesus says, call me Lord. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's biblical theology, uh, having authority over your life and, and, and yielding to him. All right, then systematic theology. Now, here's one, all right? So many years ago, I went up to Christ Church in uh, Federal Way, Washington. And um, Jay Adams was a speaker one time. Steve Byers was a speaker one time. And, um, of course, these guys are from a different systematic theology background than I'm from. But nonetheless, they're, they're giving um, this seminar on biblical counseling. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening. And how many of you knew that there were four tenses of sanctification? All right, how many of you have always heard there are three tenses of sanctification? Okay, so some of you don't know what I'm talking about. All right, so positional sanctification, practical sanctification or progressive sanctification, and then eventual perfection or glorification, all right? So I'm sitting there uh, in the conference, and um, I think it was Steve Byers was mentioning that he uh, was opening up a community counseling center because of the fourth sanctification. And I'm like, the, the fourth level of sanctification? I've never heard of that. And uh, so then he didn't elaborate. So I'll, I'm sorry, but my mind for the rest of the time during that session was just spinning wheels. Have I ever heard a fourth tense of sanctification anywhere? Any teaching, four tense, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And um, so I go the whole weekend and uh, that's bothering me. I get on the airplane at Seattle, I'm heading back to Oakland, and I'm sound asleep, and I wake up on the airplane, and I'm like, I got it! The fourth tense of sanctification is pre-sanctification, or election, all right? So he was offering biblical counseling to unsaved people because they might be elect, all right? And I was like, oh, okay. So his systematic theology was allowing him to do some things that, well, my systematic theology would not allow me to do. Because my systematic theology teaches me that according to 1 Corinthians, that the unsaved are spiritually without discernment. And they don't value the things of God. And uh, they don't understand that they don't know how to make them relate to life. Now, you can counsel unsaved people, but when you tell them that it's going to be coming from the Word of God, Sometimes they just lose interest, all right? And they don't, they don't get it, they don't understand it. And so that was a very interesting um, seminar that I went to, uh, but your systematic theology can also be very damaging, all right? Someone's struggling with sin, and they come in with huge amounts of guilt on their shoulders. And they're thinking, I must not be saved. I, I just never get victory in this area of my life. 
Well, the Word of God tells us to lay aside every sin which doth so easily, what? Beset us. So it's called a besetting sin. So if I know that as part of my theology, and that's the struggle of Christian growth, and that's the, the struggle of Romans 7 kind of living, where we're yielding to the flesh and, and we're struggling. And if I don't understand that, then I might take that person and try to win them to the Lord. And they're going to think, well, every time I commit this sin, then I need to get saved over and over and over and over again. Instead of coming to repentance and living by faith, being confident and secure that they're a child of God and that they can overcome because Christ lives in them. And this is why Paul wrote to the Corinthian believers who were very carnal Christians. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which you have of God? For you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. And so Paul's argument for the struggling Christian trying to overcome sin was not that they had lost their salvation and need to get saved again, but rather they needed to surrender to the fact by faith that they were the temple of the Holy Ghost that was living within them and that there was an ownership that needed to be surrendered to, that your life is not your own, you're bought with a price. And to surrender uh, to the authority of the Lord in their life by faith and so that's systematic theology. And then practical theology is really how you work out progressive sanctification. Now, how many of you are familiar with that term, progressive sanctification? It just means making progress in your growth as a Christian. Now, how many of you make sense when I explain it that way? Okay. So that's called progressive sanctification. So positional sanctification is when you get saved positionally, before God, you could never be judged. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Then you have to live out the reality of that position by making progress. And that will give you great confidence to grow and make progress as a Christian. And then you don't get discouraged when you fall seven times. Because righteous man may fall seven times, but yet arise. Okay? So you get back up. You confess and you dust yourself off and you get walking again. Walking with the Lord. You walk in the Spirit of God. And because you know that you're heading to a day when you'll be perfect. And your sanctification struggle will be over. And that's called being glorified. So... Your progressive sanctification, and how does that work, all right? Does that come through rugged discipline and following the teachings of your church? No, I'm not making this one up, all right? The year after I graduated, the youth pastor who came in uh, taught those that were one year behind me that blue denim was a sin, but brown denim or black denim were okay. But blue was sinful because it was what the color of rock stars. Okay, that's what they wore, and it was rebellion. All right? And then I could never figure out why at the end of every school year, we got the boys, when you go out this summer to play basketball at the public parks, don't take your shirts off. 
and, and don't wear shorts. Because during the school year, we played skins and shirts in basketball practice. And we also wore shorts for our school uniform. You see, so those were some of the things that, as a young Christian, really confused me. And I was trying to perform according to all the rules that had been given to me, and I had a faulty understanding of what it meant to make progress in my walk with Jesus. Because I wasn't living by faith, I was trying to perform based upon the design of the church that was in my life at that particular time. And when I went to other Bible-believing churches that were actually teaching progressive sanctification correctly, it was that aha moment for me, all right? And so practically, they, they had worked that out. How do you make change and grow? How do you make change and grow? All right, now, uh, biblical counseling depends upon biblical sufficiency, and I've already touched upon this. The Bible is not only inerrant, it is sufficient. And so you have what you need as a Bible Christian to use the Word of God to equip people. All right, now, what did Paul tell Timothy that equipped him as the man of God? What was the scripture? Okay. And he was thoroughly furnished unto every good work by the scripture. So what is the resource as you're giving counsel that you should use as the authority to help someone? Well, obviously, it should be the scriptures, all right? So it is sufficient in every area of life. All right, now, um, how many of you have heard the term a presupposition? All right, presupposition means that you presuppose certain things. Do you know that God did not defend his existence in the Bible? In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. There's no ontological or cosmological argument presented in the scripture for God's existence. We make those up in our systematic and uh, in, um, other theologies. But we should just assume certain things about the Bible. Number one, that there's a God. All right? So here are some things. We need the scripture to discern truth, all right? Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. By thy light we have light. Lean not unto thy own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him. And then when King Saul was having his trust battle, why Samuel wasn't coming. You know where Saul went? He went to trusting himself and making some assumptions that God wasn't going to keep his word and that Samuel had failed to, to show up. All right? And so he wasn't able to discern 
the correct way because he didn't rely upon the word that had been given to him. And we will lose our way in this life if we then go to lean on our own understanding. But we need to, to understand that we need Scripture to discern truth, to be able to figure out what truth is. Uh, Sanctify them through thy truth. John chapter 17, verse 17. Thy word is truth. All right? So we need the Bible to help us understand what Scripture is. We also need the Scripture to form our pre-understandings. All right? Our, our presuppositions. All right? Um, can God be trusted? That should just be something that's a given. Yes, it is. But why? Well, because the Scripture says... It's impossible for God to lie. And so there are certain things that we just have to assume that we only learn from the scriptures, that there is a God, right? Um, there's actually hope. That's a big one. Years ago... I um, had an elderly man. Um, he was our song leader. He, he, he was a good brother in the Lord. And um, I asked him one day, well, why does your wife never come to church with you? Oh, pastor, that's a long story. You don't want to hear it. And I said, try me. <laughs> so he began to open his heart. And um, they had spent like $50,000 of their money to build uh, a separate living quarter for him in the garage. And they, they slept in different parts of the house, but they knew it was wrong to, to get a divorce, but yet they would not reconcile the problems in their marriage, so they just lived in the same, under the same roof, but in completely different parts of the house. And I asked him, and he said, well, pastor, because the status quo will never change. It will never change. You know what he's saying? There's no hope, pastor. There's just no hope. Now, he was with us for maybe 10 years, and um, they ended up having some financial situations that caused them to sell that house, and they moved to a different city. And you know what God did? God restored their marriage, and they were attending church together because of the difficulty that was there. There's hope. And we have to have that as a presupposition. We have to have that as a pre-understanding. Just assume that God is not going to leave us without hope. But so many people don't use the Bible to know that hope is, a, is a, an expectation for the believer. And so we need the Scripture to help us form our presuppositions. All right? Uh, we need the Scripture to control our behaviors. All right. That's a big one. All right? Uh, what are some of the, of the Ten Commandments? All right, don't bear false witness. Don't murder. Don't covet. Don't commit adultery. All right? And, uh, and so these are things that contemporary society, they're, they're dismissing the authority of the Ten Commandments. It's not even in their life anymore. And nothing is controlling their behavior, all right? And uh, so people are acting upon their pleasure impulses. And the rationale goes something like this. 
Well, if God didn't intend for me to enjoy it, he wouldn't have made it. So therefore, I can do it. All right? Because I can. Well, that's not biblical thinking, but that's what you'll run into. So one night, um, a Bible counselor friend of mine was uh, doing an addiction recovery program, and um, he was uh, teaching upon the authority of Scripture and, and how the Scripture controls our behaviors, and one of the, the, the counselees or one of the new Christians out in, in the congregation at the addiction recovery program asked him, said, well, pastor, why did God make marijuana if he didn't want me to smoke it? Okay? And like, he said, so I see you're here tonight and you're wearing clothes. Why are you wearing clothes? What kind of an answer is that? You know? He's like, well, because I don't want to be embarrassed by being naked. It's not necessarily so beautiful, you know, and all that. And he's like, well, the problem is if we all came in tonight and we were all naked, we would have sex addiction problems here tonight. So we're all controlling those impulses and addictions in our life by wearing clothes. And he's like, but how does that answer my question? Okay. He's like, look, you're controlling that in this one area of your life because God tells us to be modest. So therefore, Scripture is dictating your behaviors. So let Scripture dictate the behavior in this area of your life as well. Oh, all right. So, anger, lust, laziness, all of the vices, right? Scripture controls our impulses. It controls our behaviors and what we want to do. But so many people want to live without regulation in their life. We hear, it's a free country after all. It's my life. I'm going to live it the way I want. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul was crucified. He said, I die daily. So we need scripture uh, to control our behaviors. And then we need scripture to control our heart, our mind, and our affections. All right. Uh, because many times the, the sins of the flesh that we commit with the body actually start in the wanter. Okay. In the desire part of us. All right, the epithumea, the strong desires. So everyone is tempted and drawn away of his own lusts. All right, so you have certain temptations to sin that are unique to you that Brent does not experience. But Brent has his own temptations that are unique to him. And that's at the heart level, not at the doing level but at the heart level, and we need the scripture to go there. And so many times when you're dealing with a biblical counselee, they wonder, well, why do I keep doing X, Y, or Z? And then you bring them back to the heart of the matter. 
As a man thinketh in his heart, what? So is he. Okay? Out of the heart proceed all the things that Jesus talked about. Okay? Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's just close with that one tonight and then we'll, we'll wrap this up here. Second Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 5. Casting down imaginations in every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every action. Is that what it says? Every thought to the obedience of Christ. So, the Christian truly is under the authority of Scripture to bring his thinking or her thinking into conformity to the mind of Christ. That's why we're to wear the helmet of salvation. That's why we're to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth Romans 15, 6, both glorify God in, in Christ. So thinking, so before you ever get to the doing level is the thinking level. And then also I have up there the affections um, or the heart is the feeling level. And I'll show you a chart in, in a couple of weeks, but um, it will explain, it'll, it'll walk you down. All right, one side, it'll bring it down to the heart level and then from the heart level, you come back up on the other side, and it, and it gets all of those thinking. All right, so here are some basic uh, presuppositions that we should have, all right? In the Bible, we have everything to live a pleasing to Him. We have to give an account to God. We must understand the conflict between your old self and your new uh, nature in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 6, uh, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. We need Scripture to control our heart, mind, and affections, and change must be done in order to glorify God. And so, yeah, people many times come to you for help because they really do want to change. But now what's the motivation for change? You remember last week in Daniel's prayer, how I said that as a Christian, I used to go to God to confess my sins, to get my conscience clean. And then one day I was taught from the scripture, that's not why you confess your sins, you confess them to glorify your God and to repent and give Him the glory. That totally changed my understanding of, of growing in Christ. And the same thing, it'll totally change our, our, our behaviors and it'll totally change our thinking when we do all things to the glory of God. 